Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time. Thank you, Lord, that you've kept us safe throughout this week. As we are about to study your word once more, we want to ask that you'd please grace us with your presence. Please draw close to us, O Lord. Fill us with your spirit, guide us, and lead us is our earnest plea and prayer. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of our study this evening is Jesus' Encounter at the Wedding Feast. And we are trying to go chronological through the life of Christ and the encounters that he had with different people. This is our series that we are studying right now on Friday nights. And we are now looking at the Wedding Feast. This is found in John chapter 2. And so in John chapter 2, we read verses 1 and 2. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. Jesus and the disciples that he had already called, not all of them, but those that he'd already called by the sea, they were invited to this marriage in Cana of Galilee. And what happens next? Let's continue reading. Verse 3, And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. They ran out of wine, and Jesus' mother turns to Jesus and says, Hey, they, they have no wine. And in other words, she wanted Jesus, her son, to do something about it. I guess she must have already known that he could perform miracles. And maybe she thought that this was his chance to show to the world what she had cherished in her heart for so long, that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. He, she wanted him to perform a miracle that he could produce this wine when they had run out. Maybe it was a close friend or a relative. Maybe it was someone that was, um, that was close to her that she wanted to help. But nonetheless, her intention in turning to Jesus and saying, they have no wine, was very, very obvious. She wanted him to do something about it. You see, Mary had kept these secrets in her heart for a long time. Since his birth, or even just before his birth, she knew the child that she was carrying. An angel came and told her. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 5 to 19, this is what the Bible says. And it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven. The shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad and the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Mary had known since the birth of her son, pardon me, that this child would be for the rising and the falling of the nations, that this child would bring hope to the whole world, that this child was the promised Redeemer and the Messiah. And, you know, she had been holding all this in her heart until now. And since she she's seen the son get baptized, maybe she got the reports that, the, that this voice came from heaven, and now Jesus had been in the wilderness for 40 years, and he comes down, and he's a 40 years, pardon me, 40 days, and Jesus comes down now with a, a different 
uh, demeanor on his face, with seriousness in his eyes. She knows that he's not going home to help his father Joseph anymore in the carpenter's shop. She knows that he is now set on a mission that only the Father in heaven has set him on. And she's hoping, she's hoping as any mother would, that the people would accept her son, that the people would now be able to see what she has known all this time, that this is truly the Messiah to the whole world. But what is Jesus' response to Mary, his mother, when she says, they have no wine? What does he reply with? John chapter 2, verse 4, the Bible says, Jesus, Jesus saith unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. What does Jesus say? Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. I know it sounds rude in our modern day language, calling a person woman, especially your mother. You don't call anybody that unless you're just joking. But here, it sounds rude in the modern day, but actually Jesus was being very, very polite and respectful to his mother. That was the custom of their time. And so he addresses her in a polite manner. And then he says, what? What have I to do with thee? He's not saying, uh, I don't know you. Who are you? What, 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 what do I have to do with you? Even though you raised me, what, what do I have to do with you? He's not saying that, friends. But he's, he has to answer the insinuation that the mother is making. They have no wine. Jesus, go, go, go. Do a miracle, right? But what does he say? What do I have to do with thee? Meaning this situation has nothing to do with the reason for which I came to the earth. Do you see that? Jesus is saying, look, this is not the reason why I came to help people when they have run out of wine to give them wine. Jesus did not come to the earth to put on a show. He did not come to the earth to, to tickle people's fancy and perform a few magic tricks, as we would say, on miracles and to heal a few people and that was it. No, friends, his mission was much higher and much broader and much deeper than even what his mother could comprehend. And so he had to help her understand this and say, what have I to do with thee? Mother, I did not come for this reason. And it showed that even Mary had misunderstood her own son's mission. The claims of God, friends, are above the earthly ties of human relationships. We have to make sure that no earthly connection and attraction turns our feet from the path which God Himself wants us to walk. Sometimes well-meaning people and people that are with good intentions, they want us to do certain things and we got to make sure that we walk in the light of which God has revealed to us. But if we are to do that, that means you have to know the reason for which God has called you to this world. Do you understand your purpose? Do you understand your calling? Do you understand the reason for why you are born into the world for such a time as this? Only you can answer that. And Jesus, He understood it very, very clearly. 
But then the second part of his response is what? Mine hour is not yet come. It was not his time. This was not the time, nor the place, nor the event for which God had called him to. And Jesus had to make sure that he was about his father's business. That was always his focus from a young age. Even at the age of 12, when the parents brought him to Jerusalem and they lost him for a day and they found him three days later, he was in the temple and he was teaching them, uh, the, the, the people that were the religious leaders. He was asking questions that were beyond his age. And this is what we read in Luke chapter 2, 48 and 49. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou dealt thus with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? Even from a young age, he was learning to do the will of God and not use his gifts for selfish purposes. So Jesus replies to Mary, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. If you were Mary, what would you be thinking at this point? Well, mine hour is not yet come. Jesus, okay, I get it. You're not here to turn water into wine. And uh, this is not the time for him to perform any miracles. Okay, at least I tried. At least I tried, right? Um, basically thinking, what? Jesus is not going to help. Right? I mean, when you look at that response and what Jesus said, I don't think anyone would, would think differently, right? But look at what Mary says next. John chapter 2 and verse 5. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Did you catch that? Woman, my hour is not yet come. What have I to do with thee? My hour is not yet come. This is not the time. And Mary looks at the son, turns to the servants, whatever he says, do it, okay? It's as if Mary did not even hear what Jesus was saying. It's as if she didn't comprehend what he was trying to get across. Um, did you understand, mother, what I was trying to say? Oh, she understood all right. But why did she, why, why did she reply this way? You know, it's like she did not even get the message. But you see, friends, what was happening here? She was stepping out in faith. She was believing her son. But beyond that, the Redeemer, the Messiah, it's almost as if she had utmost faith that he was going to help and he was able to help no matter what. Presumption? Not so. Faith? More likely. Jesus would ultimately reward the faith of the woman that was standing before her, uh, before him. Not because that was his mother, not because he was being an obedient son, but he saw the faith in her heart that she got the message when Jesus said to her, mine hour is not yet come. But she still trusted that he was the promised Messiah and that he was more than able to perform any miracle on this earth. So let's continue. John chapter 2, 6 through 10. We're going to read all the way to the end of the story. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. 
and they filled them up to the brim, and he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of that feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and said unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. So the water is turned into wine. The water is poured in, and wine is drawn out by the servants to bring it to the people. This miracle has significance first in regard to the symbols of what it means to us and its application to us today. And that's where I want to start first. You see, the water that was poured in, that water represents baptism. It represents baptism. We know this through several texts. John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So we got to be born of the water. We all know that that's water baptism. And then also in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, it says this, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Christ or Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. So very clearly, the baptism there is the baptism of Jesus and the symbolism of what it means to us today as well. So not just to be baptized only, but Christ's baptism. And then the wine. So the water came, it went in, and out came wine. What does wine represent? That's very simple too. We celebrate this in the communion, Luke 22, 17 to 18, and verse 20. And he took the cup and gave thanks, and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And then verse 20, Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. So what does the wine represent? It represents the blood of Jesus Christ. It represents the sacrifice of Christ. And if we were to pinpoint it to an event like what we did with the water, that is his baptism, the blood or the wine represents the cross of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice at his death. How I look at this is, this is the reference to the ministry of Christ on earth. It has an object lesson to us here. It would start at his baptism and end at his death. That was Christ's ministry on the earth here. And then it says what? Um, I mean, how did the water become wine? It was through the word of Jesus. He said to the servants, pour in the water. And then he said to the servants, draw it out. It was not because of the servants that the water became wine. It was because of Christ's word. And so through his ministry, throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ on earth, as he walked this earth, he was always pointing back to his word, the power of his word, whether it was his preaching and his teaching, or whether it was through his healing, through the miracles that he performed, even calming that storm that was on the sea. It was through the power of his word that we would come to understand the gospel of salvation, specifically the ministry of Christ, even on this earth. And it would be through the word that the great plan of salvation 
would be unveiled to all of us. But you see, who was the one that brought the wine to the people? It wasn't Jesus. It was the servants. And so the servants of Christ are tasked with bringing the gospel to the whole world. Tasked with bringing this message and His word to everybody. And so the blessing of the wine from this wedding feast, it would be brought out by human hands, not angels. Even though the Bible says the angels, they desire, they really want to spend time in giving the gospel. It's such a wonderful work to them. But God has left it to us as human beings. And so today, the gospel in and of itself has, no, has in it and of itself power. But it must be brought out to the whole world by human hands, by your hands and mine. Not just the pastor, not just the church leaders, but by every single person. We are to be messengers of the blessings of God. And you see, before that could happen though, what had to take place? The servants themselves would have to believe as well, right? They had to follow the command of Jesus, but they were putting, sticking their necks out by following Jesus. And we don't know whether they, they already knew that it was wine already. I don't know if they tasted it or not before they brought it out. They don't know whether it was the best of quality or what. But they even had to have faith that I trust the word of Jesus and what he says. And so what he says, I'm going to do it. You see that? So even them, they had to have faith in the word that Jesus gave to them, that that water had already been turned into wine, even though they, just moments before, had poured in water. So the servants are just as important in this story as anyone else because they represent us. But I want to pause here and address the issue of Jesus turning water into wine real quick. Many people point to this and say that Jesus turned water into wine. You know, it's okay for us to drink wine, alcoholic wine. But you see, friends, I want to look at a few facts before we draw some conclusions as to whether we think that this is alcohol or whether we think this is grape juice. The first thing is we find in Isaiah 65 verse 8. This is what the Bible says about wine. Thus saith the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster. And what cluster is this? It's obviously referring to grapes. And one saith, destroy it not, for a blessing is in it. You see, there is a new wine. It's what we call freshly squeezed grape juice. So in the Bible, when we look at that word wine, we can't look at it how we interpret it today. When, when we look at the word, you, you know, in the, the Bible it uses the, the word, uh, actually, I don't, I've got to be careful about this. I don't know if it's used in the Bible, but, you know, in the maybe 30 years ago, you, it was okay to say the word gay because that word gay is happy. But you can't use that word today to describe how you feel. You see that? So you can't always go, oh, this is what, how we interpret today. That's what it must be. No. In the Bible, the word wine is used to describe alcoholic wine and also freshly squeezed grape juice. So we see that in Isaiah. The second thing that I want you to consider is this. You see, the wine represents what? Jesus' blood. We already looked at that in the communion. 
So his blood cleanses us from all sin. So it can't be fermented wine that that causes um, it can't be represented by that wine that causes us to get drunk. The Bible itself condemns this type of wine. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, the Bible says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. There is a wine in the Bible that the Bible itself condemns. And it doesn't make sense that the God of the Bible, Jesus himself, who is the author of this word, would come down and make something that he himself condemns. It can't be that Jesus made alcoholic wine. You see that? And then number three, I want to look at the amount of wine that Jesus actually made. Because, you know, they say, yeah, Jesus made wine, but if he really made wine, are you really sure that this is alcoholic and not just grape juice? you got to look at how much he actually made because when you calculate it, he made enough to send people to the hospital or even to their graves. So let's look at this real quick, okay? In John 2, 6, coming back to the story, John chapter 2, verse 6, how much wine did Jesus make? There were set there six water pots of stone. How many? Six water pots after the manner of the purifying of the Jews. And how much did they hold? Two or three firkins apiece. Okay? So there were six water pots, and they contained about two to three firkins apiece. All right? And when you look up that word firkin in the concordance, one firkin is approximately 40 liters. All right? So six water pots, containing anywhere from 80 liters to 120 liters. So at a minimum, if Jesus made six water pots with two firkins apiece, that's six times two times 40 to bring it into our conversion today, he made 480 liters of wine. At the maximum, he would have made three firkins, which is six water pots times three firkins times 40 liters, it gives us 720 liters maximum that Jesus would have made. But the Bible says two to three. So we take an average between 480 and 720. That average is 600 liters. Now I want you to consider this. Jesus made 600 liters of wine. And if we consider that to be alcoholic wine, it contained alcohol, that would have sent all the guests to the hospital. In fact, it would have sent some of them to their graves. And uh, yeah, good one, Jesus, performing your first miracle and killing people, eh? But we know that that's not what Jesus did. And it just doesn't sound right. It does not sound like what the Savior of the world would come to do to bring a curse and not a blessing. And moreover, at what point did these servants bring out the wine to be served? In John chapter 2 and verse 10, it says this. The master, he says to the bridegroom, every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. So at the beginning of the wedding feast, everyone sets forth all the best wine. And when the men have well drunk, meaning when they've done drinking and they've finished drinking, then you bring out that which is worse but you've kept the good wine until now. What is that now that he's referring to? Hey, usually people bring out the, the worst wine at the end and the best wine at the beginning, but you brought out the best now. That now was at the end. 
You see, they had been already going for a few days and they ran out of wine. They ran out. They didn't run out at the beginning. They would have had plenty. But they had already been drinking. Are you telling me that Jesus made 600 liters of wine for people that had already been drinking for a few days? It doesn't make sense. He would have killed them all. 600 liters. And we know that wine usually contains greater alcoholic content than liquor like beer. Maybe there are other spirits out there that, you know, the liquors that are, are higher, but I know wine has a higher concentration. And this would have absolutely killed people. It would have because they'd already been drinking. I do not believe that Jesus made alcoholic wine, something that he himself, in the scriptures, because he was the word, the living word, condemned in the Old Testament. So, Friends, it is very, very clear that Jesus simply made what? Grape juice. But you know, in verse 10, as we read it, and I want to read this again to you. Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And then when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. In verse 10, there is uttered a very, very important truth. Every man sets forth what is best at the beginning. And in the end, out comes the worse. And that's what the world offers. And all its gifts, all its pleasures, all its seeming achievements. It seems pleasurable at the beginning, but all that excitement and all that mirth ends with weariness and disgust. It doesn't deal with the root of our problems or fill the void in our hearts, friends. But Christ, He's the opposite. Every day with Jesus only gets sweeter and sweeter. He declares to those that are open to him. He says in John chapter 1 verse 50, Jesus, he speaks to Nathaniel, because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. If you believe, you will see even greater miracles. There are greater miracles that Christ will reveal to us than when we first followed Him. And from when we first believed Him, it sh our, our spiritual life should not grow stale. The miracles should continue, and not just only continue, but they should get greater and in greater magnitude. You know, sometimes we look at maybe some people that are Christian for a short time, we think, oh, maybe their praises are so quote-unquote, elementary. And that's how you felt back then. But maybe it's because we feel like that because we ourselves have not experienced a miracle that is meant to be to the magnitude of our faith if we had been walking with Christ. Jesus says, you haven't seen anything yet. But the world, it gives its best and then the worst at the end. But Jesus, He gives His best and it only gets better and better, and better, and better. John chapter 2 and verse 11. The very last verse ends like this. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples believed on Him. This is the first miracle that Jesus performed when he came into full-time ministry. And it says there in verse 11 that he manifested his glory and as a result, his disciples believed in him even more. They already believed in him to some extent. But this miracle was performed 
also for the sake of his disciples. The disciples, they would encounter many and great temptations to unbelief. They would look at the religious leaders of their time and and their their acceptance of Christ only to see him rejected and maligned and betrayed and ultimately crucified. The disciples, they, they, they would go through a lot of trials on their faith. So Jesus, every opportunity that he had, he would take to strengthen the faith of his disciples And these disciples, they would go out to declare the wonderful works of Christ. He would send them out two by two and then in pairs later on in a group of 70 and 120 and even more, greater. And when they go out, they would be amazed and probably bitterly disappointed by the unbelief and the deep-seated prejudice that people would have against Christ and His message. They would probably be discouraged by the priests and the rabbis, those religious leaders of the day, hoping that they would accept Christ, but ultimately rejecting. But it would be these earthly miracles from Jesus that would strengthen the faith of the disciples to stand against this opposition and hold on to Christ and continue to believe that He was the Messiah. Friends, have you experienced this acts of miracles in your life? Have you seen Jesus for yourself? Because what I see too often, at least in the churches, is that the first sign of trouble, the first sign of disappointment, the first sign where something does not go our way and it shakes the boat that we're in, that we're sailing in, our life gets rocky and choppy and we seem to lose sight of Jesus. The minute that happens, many of us, we forsake Christ. We blame Christ. We question Him and doubt Him. But friends, what we need is a strengthening of our faith. Maybe that to hear the Word of God and to do service for Him through bringing the the gospel to the people. It's not just about standing up and singing song service and playing the piano and, and all these small little things in church, but giving the Word of God to people. And as you do, it will strengthen your faith and you'll see greater miracles than these. Have you seen those miracles, friends? Has your faith been strengthened? Have you beheld Jesus and the wonders that He wants to do in your life and through your life that no matter what happens, it will never shake your foundation? Jesus, He was giving the evidence and the proof of His divinity and His Messiahship to His disciples. But Jesus, He was also there to grace this wedding feast with His presence just as He performed the first wedding in the Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve, the first miracle that He would do would be at a a wedding. He showed the importance of social interaction. Sure, we're at the end of times, friends, and uh, some people believe that we shouldn't even get married. And I don't wish to get into such a debate, but you know, if Christ has laid that conviction of your heart to remain single, I'm not going to argue with you. Every man and woman to their own calling. But there is nothing wrong with attending such social gatherings. You know, Christ would eat and laugh with the sinners and the publicans so hard that that religious leaders got upset and they would call him a wine-bibber. They thought he was drunk. But Jesus, it would be at these times, at these social gatherings, these light-hearted gatherings that he would bring the truth in, that he would be able to share about his mission and his word. It was in these occasions 
that he was able to turn people's hearts and minds to heavenly things. Friends, there's nothing wrong with going to social gatherings, but just make sure you're not like the world, that you take the time to point people to Christ. Show them that there's something better that will satisfy their thirst, that is more pleasurable than what the world can give. We got to make sure we don't remove ourselves from these situations only to think that, oh, I got to wait for the second coming of Jesus and everyone else is just wicked, wicked, wicked. No, friends, even Jesus did that. But you know, lastly, remember, this miracle was a result of the faith that Mary had in Jesus. Even though she misunderstood his mission at that point, the simple faith that she had in Christ was ultimately rewarded. So with the simple faith that we have today, if we have faith that's like a grain of a mustard seed, so small, though it starts small, as it starts to grow, our understanding and comprehension of God's work will also continue to grow and expand and strengthen our faith too and overflow as a blessing to others. Because of Mary's faith, all the guests in the wedding tasted a wine that had never been tasted before on this earth. It had a heavenly origin. You know, even the minute grapes are pressed into grape juice, it begins to break down. It begins to ferment. It begins to rot. But Jesus, when he turned that water into wine, man had never tasted such a blessing before. And so with the little faith that you have, you got to remember, it's not just blessing for yourself. It's not only that you can see a miracle and strengthen your faith, but you become a blessing. And so friends, we got to learn to exercise the faith that God has given to every single one of us. We can't shut ourselves in and just keep asking for blessings and pray for blessings and seek for blessings in the Word of God and point to the Bible and say, God, I want to be like Abraham. I want to have 400 servants. God, I want to be like Solomon who had so much gold he left off counting. God, I want to be like King David who was so wealthy and rich and famous. God, I want to be, I want to be. And instead of telling God who you want to be in the Bible, look beyond that and be the blessing like Abraham was. Through that Abrahamic covenant, have that faith, that exercise in God that will bring a blessing to the whole world. Friends, faith as a mustard seed will grow into a great blessing to all those around you. Not just for ourselves, but to our neighbor, to our family, to our friends. Can people see your faith? Can they taste it? Can they feel the effects of your faith? Mary's faith, it was felt by a whole town that came together for a wedding feast. And today, Jesus is still calling you to be the light and the salt of the earth to be a blessing. And He wants to give you His light. He wants to shine the light of the glory of the knowledge of Jesus Christ into your heart and set it on fire so that you can give light to others. Not just for salvation's sake, 
but for the salvation of others. In this Christmas season, in this time where many of us really think about ourselves, I know my children, they're thinking about all the gifts. You know, we don't have a Christmas tree. And uh, I'm not saying anything against those that do. It's not about that. It's about the spirit in which you uh, approach it. And the time when the whole world focuses on the, the birth of Christ, we know that that's not when he was born. But we can turn people's hearts to the scriptures. Let's aim to be a blessing, even in this time of Christmas, where many of us are used to getting presents for self. This year, see how you can use some of your own money, some of your hard-earned money, not claiming it from the church, not taking it from the church, not taking it from anyone else, but take some of your money and buy something for somebody that is not as fortunate as you, that can never give something back to you so that you can be a blessing, so that you can shed a little light on the earth in this Christmas season and this festive holidays. May we learn to be a salt and a light of the earth. Let us be a blessing. Let's bow our heads, shall we? Father in heaven, oh Lord, Jesus came to live his life to be a total blessing. And he poured out every drop and ounce of the gift of his life to each and every one of us. And I pray, Lord, that you'd please help us to have faith Faith to trust and believe in you because without that we cannot be a blessing. We need not a blessing from heaven, but we need the blessing himself, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to dwell in our hearts so that we can be the blessing to others. Lord, touch our hearts this evening. Help us to see that we can do much more and be much more than what you've ever and wanted for us to be. Help us not to focus on self in this holiday season, but help us to focus on others and to realize that there are many blessings that we have missed. And sometimes, Lord, we focus still too much on our own problems and our own trials. Help us to look beyond that in this next few weeks to see how we can just simply be a blessing. Thank you, Lord, because you've been a blessing to us in this past year in this past week. And I know that if we pause, even for today, we can see a blessing that you've given to us. Lord, you're so good. Good to each and every one of us. We love you. And may you continue to strive with us and be with us and guide us and bless us so that we can bless others as well. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.